Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. So, we're not even at the end of January, and with the winter chill still in the air, relations between Holyrood and Westminster are set to get much frostier over the coming weeks as the fight to save the Union gets much more real. This weekend saw yet another opinion poll showing a majority support for independence. That's now 20 polls in a row, revealing that Scots would be happy to go it alone. Clearly this is no longer something that can be shrugged off and it seems the UK media and politicians have finally woken up to the fact that maybe something is happening up north. Even Gordon Brown has dusted himself down to make yet another of his major interventions by saying that the UK needs more federalism and as if he learnt nothing from the gubbing that his party got last time around by joining forces with the Tories to fight the Nats, he's apparently being lined up to work with Michael Gove to develop plans to set up a royal commission to review how the UK is governed and how powers can be shared. The former PM says the pandemic has brought to the surface tensions and grievances that have been simmering for years. That'll be in the years since his last major intervention, when he was one of the architects behind the famous vow during the last Indy referendum, when Scots were promised so many more powers if only they voted no. We did, we haven't, and here we are with support for independence having soared. And you can always tell when UK commentators have reached peak misunderstanding of Scots when they start agitating for Gordon Brown to make a return to politics, take over Labour in Scotland and lead us away from all this silly separation chatter. It just reveals how out of touch with Scots' opinion they really can be. Although more worryingly for Boris Johnson, the so-called Minister of the Union, this time around there's also growing disquiet in Northern Ireland and Wales, where support for the Union is also falling. And so with Nicola Sturgeon, despite everything that is whirling around her, with the various inquiries into how her government handled, or rather mishandled, complaints against Alex Salmond, and with an increasingly public civil war going on within her own party, still set to win yet another majority in the Holyrood election, and this time with an explicit commitment to a second independence referendum, the Prime Minister believes he can stop the independence juggernaut with just a two-letter word. No. No to giving consent for us to hold a legal referendum. But with a legal challenge already begun about whether the Scottish Parliament could hold its own legally binding referendum, can just say no really hold? Well, Boris has put together a cunning five-point plan to counter the rise in support for the Nationalists, and he plans to travel to Scotland later this week, that always goes well, to ram his message home, and central to that is talking up the benefits of being part of the Union. He says Scots want their political leaders to defeat the deadly Covid pandemic, rather than droning on about independence. That the whole UK is going through a pandemic, and in the response to that, people can see everywhere in the UK the visible benefits of our wonderful union. He says that a vaccine programme is being rolled out by a national health service, a vaccine developed in labs in Oxford, and it's being administered by the British Army. And in that, the strengths and advantages of the union speaks for themselves, he says. Unfortunately for him, those same polls that show a majority for independence also say that the public trust Nicola Sturgeon to do a better job than him on tackling the pandemic. And with the UK having the worst death rates in the world, it's frankly perhaps not the best issue in the world to beat your own drum about. And yesterday, the eve of Burns night, Sturgeon responded to Johnson's anti-independence bluster by calling him a curin timorous beastie. Well, the Constitution is a clear dividing line across the country, and that is also true of the current Scottish Labour leadership contest. In a battle for the job that just keeps on giving, Monica Lennon and Anna Sarwar are now confirmed as the two contenders. And Anna says no to Indy Ref 2, and Monica says she's willing to listen. 
We're interviewing both in Holyrood Magazine in the run-up to the leadership contest that will end next month. But for this podcast, I talked to Anis about why he decided to go for it, having lost out to Richard Leonard last time around. But first, we turn to more pressing subjects and why he likes to dress up as an elf for Christmas. So, Anis, welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm looking forward to exploring a bit more about Anna Sarwa and who you are. But actually, I'm still reeling from the revelation that you made to my pal Matt Ford on his broadcast that you dress up as an elf at Christmas. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be on your show, Mandy, um, and I, I look forward to our conversation. Um, the the elf. Uh, have you not seen that photograph of the elf? I'm sure I sent you. I'm sure I sent you a Christmas card. I accept not this year, but certainly in previous years with me dressed up as an elf on it. And if I haven't done that, then I need to have an urgent investigation why you're not on my Christmas card list. That's very dangerous. Yeah, I'm sure I'd have taken you much more seriously if I'd seen that picture. <laughs> 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 no, it's, it's, uh, so, so the reason why we do it um, for the elf uh, dress up is it's part of a fundraising. So we, we do this um, Christmas toy appeal every year. Um, certainly we've done it for the last six years where we partner with Children First and uh, women's aid organisations across Scotland. Uh, and we do some fundraising so we can guarantee uh, a Christmas for as many children as possible, particularly those that are in refuge centres across the country uh, and children that are supported by Children First. And it's amazing how, how much keener people are to to donate and support the um, the charity and the appeal when I make a fool out of myself. So um, it becomes an annual occurrence. <laughs> oh, that's good. I mean, I think I've told you before that your dad, in fact, was one of my very first interviewees when I was a very young journalist at the Evening Times. So we're going back probably about 30 years. You'd have been wow. about seven. Wow, what year was that, Mandy? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to show you up in your age, but what year was that? Well, that must have been around, I'm trying to think when I was at the even time, so probably about nine, late 1980s. So I was born in 1983. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, so you'd have been about five. Five or six. Just a young yeah. pup. Just a young yeah. pup. Politicians just get younger. And you, you, all the time. you must have started journalism when you were 12 then, Mandy, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, you're right. And then a child bride. It's, uh, wow. But do you know what? I've never been an elf. <laughs> well, why, why, don't we do this? why don't next year, next year, rather than being an elf, I'll go for Santa Claus and you can be Mrs. Claus. How about that? Oh, that's great. And we've always taken a very good picture together, haven't we? We so have. That's we've got, we've got a couple of great pictures together from Holyrood events, yeah. uh, one of which actually to this day remains uh, in my car. My car is very untidy, but still remains in, in my car. I was dressed up with me in the star uh, glasses. Uh, silly hat on uh, and you making a rather funny face at me not for, <laughs> not for the first time I should add to be fair it's just my face but <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> anyway let's start some more serious stuff I mean I, obviously we've all had a pretty hellish time over the last year and I guess the optimism this week of seeing Trump go <laughs> and the inauguration of Joe Biden as president but I just wondered how more significantly for you, actually, seeing a woman of colour for the first time become vice president. How did that feel for you? Look, it was a really emotional moment. And it's actually the first time that my eldest, my, my, my eldest son, Adam, um, who, you know, I've spoken about before, um, it's the first time he's actually wanted to watch a political event. And he sat watching uh, BBC News 24 for five hours straight to watch all the build up to the inauguration and the inauguration and really, really emotional moment. Um, actually, not just the Kamala Harris moment. Obviously, the Kamala Harris moment is particularly emotional given it's the first time we've had a, a, a woman uh, in a presidential or vice presidential role in the US. First time we've had a woman uh, of colour um, in a presidential or vice presidential role. Um, and some of them are South Asian background. Obviously, Kamala's family come from a, a, an Indian background. Obviously, my, my family are from pre-partition India too. So that's uh, that was quite emotional. But also President Biden himself, actually quite an emotional change because, um, you know, my, my kids have had to grow up with, you know, slogans like Muslim ban, um, talking about the division and the, and the hatred and the, and the prejudice um, and feeling like the world was going backwards rather than going forwards and um, feeling like we were closing in on ourselves, trying to highlight our own difference. Um, that division and, and disunity was what was going to be the running order of our days and our time. And I, I think that's probably the first symbol 
that we've had in a very, very long time um, that empathy, hope and unity can win. Um, now, I'm not naive enough to pretend that just for the election of President Trump that somehow racism ends or Islamophobia ends or anti-Semitism ends uh, or that we get peace and joy back into our politics. Far from it. Um, I've always thought that Donald Trump was a symptom, uh, not the cause. Uh, but what it does send a signal on is if you organise, if you bring people together, if you do speak the language, as I say, of empathy, hope and unity, you can bring people together and you can defeat the forces of hatred. Um, and that's that's a big challenge, I think, for global politics, not just for US politics. I mean, as you say there, that racial tension was there already. Do you think Trump then just became a lightning rod to to almost legitimise it? Yeah. So, so what I think, I think there was there must have always been an undercurrent of of prejudice in in certain parts of society, uh, and I think a combination of uh, social media a combination of a breakdown of trust in conventional media, a breakdown of trust in our institutions, um, and this this figure that came in and looked like he was just telling it like it was and talking straight and not a politician, but someone that was from outside of politics, um, all created this atmosphere where, you know, they played on people's fear for political gain. And, and you see people across the world doing that, uh, where they play on people's fear where they marginalise and discriminate against a minority in order to win support amongst a majority in order to gain economic and, and political power. Um, that's what Donald Trump did. Um, he didn't create racism, he didn't create Islamophobia, but he, but he fed on it um, and he legitimised it. And how we challenge that legitimisation of it is going to be a big challenge. Um, and I think, and I don't think we should be naive to think it's only something that's a problem in the US or a problem in, in Russia or a problem in China. I think we've got to be honest and say it's a problem in the UK and, and in Scotland as well, where there are people who seek to divide our communities. And, you know, I've, I've said a, a bit of this in, in recent times and, you know, the last few years I've spent talking to people and communities about how we bring people together um, to, to have a genuine fight across all different sectors of society around sexism, homophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and all other forms of prejudice is you know, whatever divisions that we think might exist within our own political parties or whatever division we think might exist between our political parties, honestly, Mandy, they pale into insignificance compared to the divisions that some people want to sow in our society and our communities. And, and I don't think we should ever lose sight of that um, and, and the need to challenge that head on. Do you think in Scotland that, that, that it, we're taking a comfort in the thinking that we're terribly tolerant and that these things don't exist here? Um, I, I, I think in, I think in, in history we probably have, but I think in more recent times, um, I've, I've taken some some comfort in the fact that we are more willing to ask ourselves more recently about some difficult questions. Um, I still think we've got a long way to go, um, and a good example of that is, um, you know, we, uh, the George Floyd murder in the US, um, obviously uh, energized the, the Black Lives Matter movement and campaign. Um, which obviously had an impact here. Um, but we shouldn't forget that Shekubayo happened here um, and, and other cases of prejudice and hatred happened here. Um, one when I was growing up, obviously, the, the Stephen Lawrence case. And, and I remember after all these incidences, um, we've had politicians and, and communities say, never again, things are going to change, uh, we've got to, to address these structural issues. You know, when, when the cameras go away and the media attention goes away, other big issues come up. Sometimes we do forget these issues and they do get put back on the on the back burner. I think I think what made the Black Lives Matter campaign different this time, though, um, is the fact that it happened during COVID. Because I, I honestly think the fact that we were all largely at home, the fact that we were all... Um, experiencing the the collective trauma of of COVID, we had you know lockdown happening. There was very little else in the news apart from COVID, and some of us were searching for other things to talk about, not just COVID as well. It kind of helped, I think, the Black Lives Matter campaign actually get into people's heads and, and break through, cut through, and, and actually gain um, people's support and, and gain voice. Um, the challenge from it, though, of course, is the rhetoric is great. And, and, you know, I've, I've challenged this with, within my own political party and other political parties is fantastic. Let's have the rhetoric. Let's make the bold comments. Let's call it out and have a zero tolerance approach. But actually, 
it's actions that are going to speak louder than words. And and I'd like to see us in Scotland over the coming years demonstrate that we didn't just say the right things, but actually we learnt and we acted upon it. Um, and as a result, we can create a Scotland that's that's a better Scotland for our children to grow up, regardless of their background. You and Humza Yusuf, um, obviously Cabinet Secretary, SNP um, Cabinet Secretary, have worked together very much on this. Which Do you think even that symbolism of you and he working across the parties was important? Yeah, I, I think that is important. And, and I, I would give credit to, to other colleagues as well. It's, it's whilst, whilst Humza and I have obviously done some specific work around racism and uh, Islamophobia, um, and there's been, you know, we've we've had backup from from some of our parliamentary colleagues um, on that as well, and and I think what the way I reflect upon it, Mandy, is there are surely some things that go beyond our party politics, and if if challenging prejudice and hatred in our society is not something that that goes beyond party politics, then I, then I don't know what is, um, and and so I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again: is I will work with anyone to challenge racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of prejudice. Work with anyone um, because we've got a whole job of um, educating to do. We've got to take people with us. We've got to genuinely build a movement of, of unity, not just a movement of division. Um, and, and, you know, that's some of the stuff I've talked about during this leadership election campaign, but actually it goes beyond even my own political party. It's something that I think has to be a national priority for us. One of the very polarising issues has been the issue of the Gender Recognition Act reform. Yeah. Where do you stand on that? I mean, that people are being accused of transphobia. You've seen that Andy Whiteman uh, resigned from his own party just because he felt he couldn't even raise questions um, to educate himself about this. I mean, is yeah. this a problem that we're about to face? Look, I think um, when, when, I, when I reflect on on these issues, um, I, do, I do think about the other campaigning work that I've been involved in, as I say, around other forms of prejudice and hate. And I think fundamentally we've got to recognise that, you know, trans rights are human rights. This is a human rights um, issue. Um, but at the same time, how we conduct um, the our debate, how we conduct our uh, discussions has got to take into account of people's real lived experience and that's the lived experience of, of trans people and, and of course there is transphobia and we have to address transphobia in our communities um, but there's also um, I think a, a job around how we how we educate, how we get the right tone, how we have a respectful tone how we bring people together um, and um, you know when, when I talk about for example um, Islamophobia, I, I, I didn't come into this saying right I'm going to shout Islamophobia at people or Islamophobic people I want to educate and, and take people on a journey and I think that that's obviously a really polarising debate around um, trans rights uh, but I think we've got to address them as as a human rights approach, uh, uh, trans justice, um, and also challenging sexism and, and other forms of prejudice at the same time and try and find a way that we can again, speak the language of empathy and bring people together. Um, and a, a polarised debate doesn't help that. Do you think people these days are a bit quick to shout phobia at you, regardless of what they're talking about? Um, I, I think um, I, I would caution against that because quite a lot of people, because that can be taken both ways. So um, I think, that, you know, some would say people are too quick to shout um, phobia or or racist or whatever else um, and and therefore it, it's clamping down on debate and discussion but at the same time some people say some people are um, not doing it enough so I, th I, th I don't think you can say it's a wraparound I think the different circumstances and different situations will have different approaches uh, but what is very clear is th there is ingrained prejudice in our society there is um, there is uh, an injustice um, that exists in our society and we've got to try and take all our communities with us and if I've, if, as I've said before if if the fight against sexism um, is going to be won then um, it can't be fought by women alone it has to be uh, you know the brothers have to back up their sisters and, and look at themselves reflect on themselves and change themselves if we are going to uh, challenge sexism the exact same way with um, other forms of prejudice whether that be Islamophobia or uh, anti-Semitism we can't leave that to Jewish communities or Muslim communities alone it has to be a fight for all of us um, I would say the exact same thing about um, transphobia homophobia or any other form of prejudice 
we can't leave these issues to individual communities. We've got to see that it's a fight for all of us and it's got to be done in a way that educates, takes people with us and, and avoids a polarised debate that only further divides us. And when you talk about the lived experience, I mean, some of the abuse that you and your family have receives and has received is, is horrific. Um, who and where do you get the resilience from to, if you like, rise above that? Um, so, so I think about this a lot in the context of, of my own kids because the reason why is because I don't think I truly understood um, what goes through both a child's mind and a, and a parent's mind at the actual time. Um, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. So like my, my earliest political memory is as a 13, 14-year-old boy in terms of, you know, um, UK politics, you know, political memories, I think maybe it was 12, um, is leaving home to go to school and there was this funny-looking envelope on the uh, at the front of the door um, and me being, uh, me decided to pick it up and open it um, and there was a picture um, mocked up of my mum tied to a chair uh, with two guns pointed to her head um, with and cut out letters that was written bang bang that's all it takes um, and that was uh, a threat from at the time Combat 18 uh, which is a far right organisation which is all about intimidating my family and intimidating my father so he wouldn't continue in, in politics and, and seek in the future to be uh, Britain's first Muslim member of parliament now um, in, in, a, in a strange kind of way um I probably I probably gained some resilience from that because you create a new normal for yourself. Um, so I think I, I think as growing up, I created a new normal. My siblings obviously created a new normal for ourselves where, where threats and abuse were a natural part of um, part of our life, part of our everyday thinking. You know, I've been in a situation where we've had, you know, when I was a kid, cars, you know, following following our car when we were driving. Um, you know, one time there was someone that, catapulted a stone through the front window and it hit my dad in the head um, when I was a kid, um, when I was campaigning for him to be um, Britain's first Muslim member of parliament in 1987. I remember uh, being assaulted because um, I was out delivering leaflets for him. Um, but alongside that, I remember when I was out in the city centre and I, as a teenager having glass bottles thrown at us because we were from a, from a you know, the, the P word um, and all the swearing that comes alongside that. So you, I think you create a new normal for yourself um, and that, that new normal probably is what gives me resilience. Uh, but at the same time, where I probably get the strength from is um, I could see from my own dad's eyes and particularly my mum's eyes actually because I, I think my mum is probably even more resilient and more strong than my, my dad is uh, because, you know, in many ways she was both mum and dad to us because, you know, dad was always working hard and um, trying to trying to achieve and 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 trying to make make history and break down barriers for for diverse communities across the country so in many ways we, we, we didn't really see much of them when we were growing up so mum was mum and dad um, a lot of the time is that strength because i remember i remember my mum used to always say to us you know what whatever happens we can't let these people win whatever happens the what they they want us to walk away and if we walk away they win and we can't let them win. And and I think that's where I draw the strength from. Um, and I suppose that the experience of what it means for my own kids is I can see already that my kids are starting to develop their own new normal. Um, that doesn't sit right with me as, as a parent and as a dad. Um, but I hope, I hope that what, what that they get resilience and strength from it. And I hope that whatever negatives it brings, um, I'm able to make up for that with the with the love and hopefully some some appropriate time. Um, doesn't feel like it these days at the moment, but um, with love and t with love and time. Um, but it's a challenge. Um, but at the same time, as saying that, Mandy, I'm, I'm, I I also think I'm in, I'm 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 lucky in the sense that you know I'm not the only or our family is not the only family that faces prejudice and, and hatred or, or abuse. There's lots of families across the country that in their own ways face prejudice uh, or abuse. Um, in some ways, I'm lucky. I've got I've got a platform 
uh, in which I can I can use my voice. There are lots of people that don't have a platform, don't have a voice, um, and it's for them that we've got to keep fighting. I wonder if uh, your kids in the future will talk about your wife as being their dad, mum. <laughs> well, well, I it's, it's funny because um, I I I always so you know you know what it's like with uh, political interviews when they try and do a bit more bit more color and you get asked the question, uh, the question that I hate getting asked because I always want to give the honest answer and people always find it really strange when I give the answer is what is your greatest fear. Uh, and my answer always to the what is your greatest fear question is my greatest fear is that my kids don't love me when they grow up. Yeah. And and um, because I, I know, you know, I, I'm choosing to do what I do because I believe in it. I, I care about it, but I've got to recognize that what the decisions I make don't just impact on me, they impact on other people as well and more so my kids than anybody else. Um, so I, I constantly keep that in my mind uh, and because I constantly keep that in my mind I, I make sure um, there's not a single day that I don't tell my kids that I love them um, and there's not a single day uh, that I don't ask them um, if they love me too and they're happy with me um, but sometimes you get don't get the balance right and that's a challenge I think in the coming months and years is making sure you get the balance right so let's look at the kind of the reason for that fear, which would be your attention, if you like, on the Labour Party and politics. Um, let's look at the Labour Party. And I think for the whole time we've known each other, from when you were an MP to then being an MSP, being the deputy leader of the party, we've probably been talking about the future of the Labour Party. Or, or It does or... feel that way, actually. It does feel that way. <laughs> I know. It's like we always have a conversation about um, how is it how is it going to sort itself out? How is it going to be uh, fixed? How does it get a resurgence? Um, it, is, it does at times feel like a repetitive conversation, um, which which in one sense is, is great because it shows that um, people, enough people still care the challenge is we've got to make sure that people continue to care and that we are relevant for the future. Um, but yeah, it's a repetitive conversation you and I have had for over 10 years, Mandy. Of varying degrees in terms of concentration. But I guess, um, where do you think the problems started? If we if we just look at devolution then, and we look at where Scottish Labour was in terms of you know the hegemony across Scotland and where it is now, where did the problems start and given how entrenched you are and the family is within the Labour Party, are you not part of the problem? Yeah, well, look, where did the problem start? I mean, for, first thing I would say is um, I have not spent a day of my political career with with Labour and government. Um, I I became an MP um, after uh, an election that Labour lost um, and Labour wasn't in government. I've not spent any time um, as an elected member with Labour and government. So... Um, the the idea that that it's somehow my fault, I think, is is probably a bit far fetched. Uh, the second thing I'd say on that final point is, people forget that I'm I'm only thirty seven, and the the idea that this thirty seven year old who entered politics at twenty seven somehow was the driving force and decision maker on on labour politics in Scotland or the UK is simply not true. I wish it was the case, Mandy. We might we might be in a slightly better position, or at least I like to think that. Um, I, I, so that's another thing, and, then, and the other thing is, um, you know, I've seen reference to, you know, uh, you know, he's had his chance and all the rest of it. Is if are we honestly saying that a thirty-seven-year-old um, is written off, doesn't get a second chance, can't change, can't develop? Um, I, I, I honestly, when I when I look at my political career, the two hardest moments for me um, were the defeat in the general election in uh, 2015 um, and the defeat in the leadership election in 2017 they were they were the two hardest moments um, of my career but honestly hand on heart looking back i i honestly think i i believe it now and i think i'll believe it um till the end of time is they were probably also uh, my two biggest lessons and and in some ways i learned well i definitely know i, I learned more from them than i did from any kind of wins um, and, and I think it's given me a different perspective. Um, I think it's changed my, my perspective on politics. I think as a result, I, I honestly think I'm, I'm a better human being, uh, a better father and a better politician. Um, 
than, than I was 10 years ago. Um, and I hope in another 10 years, um, I can say the same again. Um, in terms of where it went wrong for the Labour Party, um, I, th- I mean, that's that's a really broad question, but um, I think... And we've only got a day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how long is the podcast? Um, <laughs> but the... Um, I think I think certainly um, it's undoubtedly the case that when we, you know, one of our greatest achievements was the creation of the Scottish Parliament and devolution. And I, I don't think we as a Scottish Labour Party ever really came to terms with devolution as a political party, even though we implemented and, and delivered devolution as, as a Labour government across the UK. I think that I think that's one part. Um I think the, the second part is um, there is there's always going to be the challenge of uh, when you are in as a political party in power, um, you can seem aloof, you can seem distant, and you can seem as if um, you've lost that connection. Um, I, I think there was an element uh, of that. Um, I think the other mistake we probably made was when we lost the election in 2011 by one seat, um, I think too many people probably... 2007. Believed. Sorry, 2007. sorry, my, my apologies, yeah. 2007. Uh, it was 2007. much worse than 2011. Yeah, indeed, sorry, sorry. No, yeah. I, I, was, I was meaning the, the landslide yeah, yeah. that we had in 2011, but yeah, you're right, in 2007. Is when, we, when we lost in 2007, I think, we, um, I think there were too many people in the Labour Party that thought it was a blip and one, one heave and we'll get back into, into power again. Um, and I think that partly explained why there was a landslide defeat in two, in 2011. Um, so I think that was that was one part of it. Um, and then undoubtedly, um, you know, constitutional politics has never sat comfortably with the Labour Party, and and that polarising yes no divide, um, I think, was another impact uh, on where we are. Um, but rather than looking at the past, uh, the challenge that I would set to to members of my own political party is if we are honest with ourselves. Um, if we look ourselves in the eye um, at a time when there is greater injustice in our society, greater division in our society and greater inequality, if we're really, really honest with ourselves over that period of time, the last few years in particular, um, I don't think we've given our members or the people of Scotland the Labour Party they deserve. And and part of the challenge, I think, through this leadership election and beyond is this is not something that's going to be fixed overnight. It's not going to be one person It's going to take new new people new ideas uh, a new vision uh, thinking about the future of scotland and it's it's a long haul it's a it's it's a it's a years long project uh, as in years and years long project and um, in order to get us back to where we need to be so we so we can have the labor party that i think scotland needs right i'm going to come back to a few things that you said there and then we'll come on to the leadership but you yeah. said that you'd learned lessons um that have served you well, if you like, from from losing in the general election and then also in the leadership election. What did you learn? What did you learn about yourself? What what's changed about you? Um, well, the first thing is I see when you are when you go. It goes back to the the um, comment you made about uh, our conversations over the last ten years about you know the future of the Labour Party. Um, see when you are talked about as. Um, you know, being, you know, the future or or a hope or all the other stuff, and and your your ambition is decided for you. It seems by the by the commentary or other people in the political party that 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 is quite that's quite limiting in some ways and quite pressure filled in some ways. Um, and being liberated of ambition, um, in twenty seventeen for the leadership election was was I think a real eye opener for me um, in a positive way. Um, I meant I was more confident in terms of being myself and just saying what I what I think um, and why I think it. Um, the other thing is um, coming from a um, BMA background, and you, you mentioned the stuff that Hamza and I have done on um, Islamophobia and racism, and, and I'm sure this I'm sure this is what he thinks as well. Um, but when you come from a minority background into politics, it, it almost feels like you you try doubly hard to be seen as being mainstream and just like everybody else and you don't want to highlight your own difference because you don't want to get pigeonholed. You don't want to say that people think you're only talking about issues that, that matter to one community or you're not just the 
Asian MSP or the Muslim MSP, but you are, you know, Glasgow MSP or a, or a Scottish MSP. Um, so, you, so you don't have the you don't have the confidence, I think, to be in your own skin. To be honest, to be able to like just be yourself and and talk about things that that matter to you. Um, so so that was that was liberating um, in terms of you know having established myself. I I hope um, as a as a mainstream political figure in Scotland, it gave me the freedom to. To, to talk about issues that perhaps I was more shy to talk about uh, before. And then the third thing um, is, is what I touched upon earlier on, which is about um, actually working with diverse communities um, and seeing the impact that prejudice and hate has on, um, on life chances, life opportunities and life outcomes. And actually seeing that the partisan arguments that we have and I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of them just like any other uh, politician. Um, you know the the partisan arguments that we had, or the or the fights that we have in Parliament, or the or the pantomime that sometimes we put on in our politics about trying to highlight and emphasise and exaggerate difference and 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 division. You know what? They actually don't matter. People, normal people, don't really care about them. Um, so, so I think it's also changed in that sense about what real division is, um, and also probably changed the way that I, I probably conduct myself in a certain way as uh, as well. Um, but you know, and if you look at the way world politics is going, you touched upon this earlier on as well. Um, in the US, you know, we, we we all need to think about how we're kinder to each other and more empathetic to each other as well, um, because our country deserves better than the politics of Scott just now. Do you think you were kind to Richard Leonard when he, he beat you and became leader, but then did face quite a difficult time with the team in trying to carry it along with him? Yep. Look, I, I served um, in, in Richard's cabinet twice. I served once as a um, health spokesperson. I think we did lots of really, really good work together when when I was a health spokesperson. Obviously, we had this um, the the controversy in, in Tayside and we, we won a public inquiry into mental health services in Tayside. Um, we did lots of work around the workforce crisis. We, we set up a workforce commission to look at staffing issues um, in, in, in the NHS. Um, I then left the shadow cabinet, as um, as you know, it's well reported in terms of how that happened. Um, which, uh, and then I spent my time after that talking about, you know, I was already doing some of it, but I did it. I spent a lot in terms of a lot more of my time talking about issues that um, are deeper divisions away from party politics. So I spent my time around the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and and working with families there to try and win a public inquiry around what was happening in the cancer ward. We, we've won that public inquiry now. We need to make sure we get justice and answers for families, um, and then working around challenging prejudice uh, and, and hate. Um, and then Richard um, asked me to go back into the shadow cabinet um, in, in the later part of last year. I didn't hesitate. Um, I'd always made it very clear um, to Richard that um, I was always willing um, to serve um, the Labour Party and to serve whoever was Labour Party leader because I, I, I cared about the Labour Party um, and he wanted me to do the constitutional brief. We worked very closely on the constitutional brief. I think we were both in the same place. Um, about where we needed to be as a, as a political party, um, and and honestly, even now, um, I, I I think Richard has. You know, I was asked this question earlier on today by by a, by a different journalist about you know Richard's contribution over the last three years. Richard's got a more than a three year contribution to the Labour Party and the Labour movement. Um, he's worked for the Labour movement and the Labour Party for decades. He's got a massive contribution for the Labour Party and the Labour movement. But that contribution isn't over yet. He's going to be a really, really important part of the, the team going forward. Um, I'm really determined in that. Um, and, he's, and he's got a big part to play in Labour politics going forward as well. Why would What would you say to the people that voted for Richard last time um, and not you? What would you say to them about why they should vote for you to be a leader this time? Um, I I don't think I was the right candidate last time. Um, I um, I think I'm a I think I've got a different perspective than perhaps I had last time. I think um, it's a different time from what there was um, last time. I think you know coming through coming through COVID, hopefully coming through COVID soon. Um, I think the world has changed. I think Scotland has changed. I think our our politics needs to change. I think I've spent that time listening and, and learning and I'm, I've developed 
um, as as a human, as I say, and as as a parent, and as a politician, um, and and I I honestly think I'm uh, well placed. Um, I hope to to be able to to deliver a message of of rebuilding um, our country and and reuniting our people um, around empathy, hope, and, and unity. Um, and I've demonstrated that through the work I've done in the last few years, and I think we can do that going forward. Um, so yeah, so I'm 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 not gonna say people got it wrong last time. They probably made the right decision last time, um, and and I hope they, they they look at me and my merits on this occasion, um, and and I want to work with them regardless of who they vote for last time or who they vote for this time. I want to work with everyone in the Labour Party to, to rebuild it, um, and then to have the opportunity to rebuild Scotland after that. And it sounded like from what you said, you'd be going into this election, which is only in four months' time, um, not expecting to win it. Well, look, if, if you're on let's not be naive. There's, there's no point us being naive or, or, or trying to talk down the scale of the challenge. We've, we've just come through in the last few years our worst European election result in our history. Um, we've come through our worst general election result um, in modern times. Um, and, you know, I think it would be naive. Um, I think it would be churlish if I was to say, you know, elect a new leader and we're going to we're gonna win, a, win an election and elect Labour First Minister in four months' time. Um, of course, I've got ambition. I want us to gain as many seats as possible and to do well in that election. But I recognise that we have got a job of work to do that's going to take years. Um, and the starting point for that is um, to, to try and bring our people together. Uh, to talk about how we can have a COVID recovery parliament that focuses on the issues coming through COVID and rebuilding our country, um, to heal the wounds, to have a period of calm, um, and and to see it as a staging post where I think we can rebuild over the over the five years that follow, and then um, I hope you know have the ability to be challenging and to have a Labour government, a Labour first minister, in an election that follows. So you talk to be first minister in twenty twenty six. I I genuinely believe that if the Labour Party uh, can pull itself together, that we do the hard work that is required um, to rebuild the party, um, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, then I, I think we can get rid of this fatalism that people have that the election result in May is inevitable and the Labour Party is inevitably going to get gubbed. Um, I think we can break that fatalism. I think we can perform uh, better in that election than people suspect we will. Um, at the moment, we are fighting for survival. There's no point in denying that we're fighting for survival. We are fighting for survival. I think we can survive and I think we can progress in the election uh, from where we are now. Um, and then we use that platform the next five years to be a, a credible uh, opposition, but also a credible alternative. And then the election that follows, I, I do think we can uh, return a, a Labour government, a Labour first minister. And, and I'm determined um, for us to do that. Do you worry, though, given the constitutional debate, that you're running out of time and that actually by 2026 we could be heading towards independence or indeed be at independence? I, I, so, the, so I've, I've spoken a lot in the last few days about uh, a COVID recovery parliament um, and focusing on COVID recovery. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, uh, Mandy. It's, we, we are going through a deeper and sharper hit economically than, than the banking crisis. And it took 10 years of austerity to recover from that. Um, and that's not to mention the huge human toll um, that we are taking in terms of, of lives lost and lives still at risk. And also all the human toll we're going to take in terms of people's mental health, uh, other health um, outcomes uh, getting poorer, child poverty on the rise, uh, people losing jobs, um, massive hit. And and I think it would be really really wrong. And I and I don't think it's it's it'll be true leadership right now if we say we come through that that trauma of COVID and we go straight into another divisive um, referendum, whatever side you're on. And so what I'm, what I'm saying to, to people in my own political party, but also to wider Scotland is, whatever your view on independence, um, whether you are yes or no, um, what you're voting for in the next election is what you want the priorities to be for the next five years. And if your priorities change after five years, you can vote for new priorities in the election that follows. This is not a vote for life, it's a vote for the next five years. And let's resolve in the next five years to heal the wounds in our country, to bring our people together and to rebuild Scotland. That means focusing on the economy, 
um, to make it work for everyone, uh, creating and um, protecting new jobs, leading the international fight against the climate emergency because climate change doesn't recognise borders, um, to rebuild our education system so it's a global beacon again, uh, and to build an NHS that never again has to choose uh, between treating a virus or treating cancer. Let's make that our collective national mission for the next five years. Uh, and then if your priorities change in the five years that follow, you get to vote for new priorities. That, that's why I'm saying to people is let's focus on what unites us and brings us together. Let's not go back to the old arguments of before um, after the collective trauma we faced of COVID. The thing is, though, the reality is it isn't an old argument, is it? I mean, there's a, the polls are showing that the SNP will get a majority. Would you then say that they shouldn't push for a, a second referendum? So first of all, I, I, I don't accept that the result is inevitable. It, we are not spectators, we're participants, and there's too many people in the Labour Party and other political parties that are assuming that you know the result is done and dusted and we need to plan for what happens after May, not actually influence what happens in May. So not a single vote's been cast yet, not a single seat has been decided yet. Uh, I think we can stop an SNP majority. Um, I think um, we can avoid... Um, having that referendum and instead focus on what brings us together as a people and that's a COVID recovery. Um, so I want us to be I want us to be on that journey um, together. But the other point is, look, I, I can also understand, also, firstly, within that poll, I think it's important to know that, that within that poll that even shows, you know, 51, 52% of people in support of independence, once you remove the, the don't knows, that they aren't saying they want an independence referendum now. So, People still recognise that COVID recovery needs to be the first priority and, and independence or a referendum is further down in their priorities. Um, that's the first thing. And the second one is, as I mean, I've seen this suggestion by, by other people that somehow if we change our line on independence or our line on referendum, that somehow it's a, it causes a resurgence for the Labour Party and we compete again. Politics is not just about positioning, it's about honesty. And I think we should be honest with ourselves and honest with the public and argue for what we believe is in the best interest of Scotland. I don't believe it's in the best interest of Scotland for us to come straight out of COVID and go into a referendum. I don't believe it's in the best interest of Scotland for us to be um, independent. That's not to say I don't respect those that have that view and disagree with me. They're entitled to have that view. Um, I will make a different case and try and persuade them. Um, but that's not the priority right now. Um, the priority's got to be pulling our country together. And just to kind of close, I suppose, and this, this time has been hard for us all, and it must be particularly hard when your parents are so far away, like yours, no matter how old we get. I'm very still... lucky, actually. My, my mammy is here at the moment. Oh, is she? Yeah, so so um, I, I think she's probably regretting being here at the moment, and <laughs> given that she arrived on, on Boxing Day um, and went straight into new restrictions and a lockdown, um, and uh, and now uh, a, a Labour leadership uh, election. So um, I'm sure she's probably itching to go back in some ways. Um, but having my mammy around right now is uh, is another source of uh, resilience, encouragement, and strength for me. So so I'm not complaining about that. Well, actually, then it's probably fresh because I was going to say, what's their response to the fact that you're going for this again? Um, so my, um, my mum's my first reaction was, um, one, do you want it? And if you do, then fine, go for it. Um, and the second one was that your kids are young, um, your health's got to come first, and their health's got to come first. And if you've got any doubt, no one is going to think any less of if you don't do it. And so put that first. But if you but if you do want to do it, then of course you you should. Um, and then her reaction after that was, "When can I start phoning?" Because <laughs> uh, she loves a campaign. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and uh, my dad's reaction, I don't know, it was, it was quite a diff difficult, a different one for my dad because, like, obviously with him being in uh, Pakistan, um, we only really have exchanges on um, on WhatsApp um, sporadically, and. Um, his reaction was, first of all, do you think you can win? And I said, 
<laughs> I said, um, I think I can. And he goes, okay. Um, and do you think it's the right thing to do? And I thought, well, I need to think about it, but I think it is. And he says, okay, well, if you think you can win, you think it's the right thing to do, then go for it then. And then it was bye. Because if any, anyone that knows, my, my dad knows that he's he's not much of a conversationalist uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to telephone calls. And uh, you can be, you're very lucky as a, uh, as a, as a child, if you get 10 seconds in a call uh, once a week, because um, he is always running at 120 miles per hour. Um, maybe that's where I get some of it from. Um, but no, I, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that they've, they've only ever uh, encouraged me, not discouraged me. Um, and even when I've had dark moments in politics um, and when I've, I've thought whether, you know, I, I, I will always do stuff that I think can help influence and change the world. Um, that's why that's what I care about. That's what makes me get up in the morning. Even when I've had those dark moments and I've thought twice about whether, you know, I wanted to be in frontline politics and maybe I should spend my energy and I can better serve changing the world by doing something else. Even in those moments, um, they've they've never um, discouraged me away from from where my my own mind was at. They've only ever said, "You've got to do what's right for you." Um, so, I'm, so I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, but no, I'll always take my mommy's advice over my dad's, put it that way. I think that's wise. It's wise. And you know, Anna, if you win this leadership election, do you promise me that we can put a picture of you on the front cover of the magazine in your elf outfit? <laughs> do I have to give you one of the historic ones or can we do a new elf outfit? A new one. A, a new, new I, elf I, 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 am, I am happy to make that commitment. And my, my favourite headline uh, of all uh, was last, was it last year or the year before? And my Elf outfit and the um, Daily Record, uh, David Clegg, who was at the uh, record at the time now, of course, high-flying editor of The Courier, um, the, takes credit for this. I'm not sure it was him or whether it was a sub-editor. Uh, the headline, a picture of me in the Elf outfit, and my the headline was Labour's Elf Spokesperson. Uh, and I, I thought that was great. I put that on the front of a Christmas card and sent it to everyone. I thought it was brilliant. Mine would be Labour has an elfy future. <laughs> <laughs> That's positive. I'll take that. The Labour Leadership Contest ends on February 26th, with the new leader announced the following day. This will be the party's 10th leader since 1999, and with Annis already conceding there won't be a Labour First Minister in Scotland until at least the election in 2026, on past record, Scottish Labour's next leader might not be the same one that fights the election in five years' time. And I thought the gig economy was something Labour wanted to end. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.